1: Welcome, everybody, to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host, Emma Shortest. And today I'm joined by Dagomar de Groot, who's a professor of environmental history at Georgetown University, and among other things, the founder and director of historicalclimatology.com and the co founder and co director of the Climate History Network. He's also the host of his own show, The Climate History Podcast. But today, Professor de Groot is here with us at the New Books Network to discuss his forthcoming book, The Frigid Golden Age. Climate change, the Little Ice Age, and the Dutch Republic, 1560 to 1720. Dagmar de Groot, welcome to the show. Oh,
0: thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure.
1: Um, Dagmar, I wonder if you might begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be an environmental historian.
0: It's a very good question because when I was an undergraduate student, I didn't even know that environmental history existed. And actually, when I started my master's program at McMaster University, I didn't know either. And I was actually to a book called Conquest of Nature um, by Blackburn, that I was introduced to the existence of something called environmental history. And at the time, I was actually doing a project on the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. <laughs> and I wanted to do a PhD, possibly, on nationalism in Iraq. Um, so it was just completely, I was doing something utterly different. But... Uh, uh, I was interested in history that tells us something about the present and maybe tells us something about the big issues that will matter in the future. And so for that reason, environmental history immediately captured my attention. And actually, as a kid... My first interest was in science, not history. So I I briefly wanted to be a meteorologist, and for a long time I wanted to be an astronomer, actually. So um, I already had that sort of latent scientific interest, and I think that's why environmental history really captured my attention in a big way. And then um, I decided, well, I'll apply for a PhD in (laughs) Iraqi nationalism in the early 20th century and a PhD in the Little Ice Age in Europe in the 17th century, and I got into the PhD about the Little Ice Age, and I figured that was probably my best opportunity, in part because of who my supervisor would be. Um, my supervisor uh, was Richard Hoffman at York University, and he's a very well-known environmental historian of the medieval, uh, I want not say the medieval world, but really is focused on Europe, um, and I just got a sense that he would be a great person to work with, and indeed he was.
1: Fantastic. And so what le- led you to the Little Ice Age and the Dutch Republic in particular?
0: It was actually funny. So I was on a bus um, winding my way from Hamilton to Toronto. These are two big cities in Ontario for listeners who don't know anything about Canada. And Toronto has been growing very fast, which means that its infrastructure is very poor, hasn't cut up to the speed that it's been growing, which basically just means that it takes forever to get to uh, Toronto from Hamilton at rush hour. So I was really stuck in traffic, um, and I was around sunset. And so it was a beautiful sunset. The sun was sort of deep red, and the glow of the sun on the towers of Toronto, which I could see from afar, was almost sort of apocalyptic. And as I was seeing that scene, Um, I was reading a book on the invention of agriculture, um, which is now very, very dated, but at the time it seemed like everything sort of emerged at the same time uh, 10,000-odd years ago. Again, this is super dated now, but uh, it seemed like that was the case then. And the argument made in the book was that it might have been in part because of climate change, which I think is still actually an argument that holds up quite well. (laughs) And so that's when I started thinking about linking climate change to human history in a way that might matter for the future. Because that apocalyptic scene on Toronto made me think of, oh, well, you know, <laughs> climate change when I actually, somehow it just got me thinking about climate change and, you know, burning and drying and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then, specifically the Little Ice Age, I actually happened across the scientific literature before I got to the historical literature. Um, And in fact, I thought that I was inventing climate history. I thought I was taking a real risk in trying to connect uh, past climate changes to the human story. And I think it was actually after I applied for the PhD that I realized a whole bunch of people had already connected the Little Ice Age, um, to the human story. So um, so, <laughs> so, I went from inventing the field to having a project that was very much within the established borders of the field. But um, so the project I had in mind originally was on how the Dutch had sort of suffered in the coldest stretch of a Little Ice Age. And, and I increasingly started to find that that was not at all the story. And so I could still say something new.
1: Fantastic. And, and The Frigid Gold, need it, it is a fabulous book that's grounded in both science and history, and that, that obviously comes from your connection to science as well. Um, for those of us who maybe aren't familiar with, with climate history and how it works, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this little ice age and what it was and how we know that it happened.
0: Yeah, happy to. Um, so I think that when most of us think about climate change we think about anthropogenic global warming, and if someone asks um, uh, a layperson to draw um, a graph of climate change over the past 2,000 years, they would draw a hockey stick <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least if they believe, which we hope, in global warming. So everything is steady before, oh, 50odd years ago, and you know there's that, that huge spike. In fact, the picture is a little bit more complicated than that. And it's true that if we take a big step backward, then the graph does resemble a hockey stick. But when we take a half step forward, then we can start to see the wobbles in this graph um, that long predate anthropogenic global warming. And one of the most important wobbles is what we call the Little Ice Age. So about 1250 CE, um, Earth's average temperature started cooling. And it was relatively cold up until about 1850. So that's number one. So it's a cold period between 1250 and 1850. But it's a lot more complicated than that. So the cold period is really expressed in several really cold pulses. You can almost think of them as very little ice ages. Um, And these cold pulses are caused by a whole bunch of different variables. We call them forcing. Um, One of them, very... um, there's controversy about how important this is, but one of them might be a drop in solar activity, a prolonged drop—a grand solar minimum—and um, smaller sort of solar minimum. Um, so that's the Wolf minimum in the early uh, 14th century, the Sporer minimum in the 15th and early 16th century, the Maunder minimum uh, in the late 17th, to the early 18th century, and then the Dalton minimum finally in the late 18th through early 19th century. So you have these pulses when um, sunspots are very low, uh, solar flares are very rare, and just solar activity is, is lower than it had been. But then also, Earth's, Earth changes in its orbit regularly through time. And its precession changed in such a way that there was less solar insulation, it's just kind of a term that means solar energy, in the northern hemisphere in the late summer. A little bit more in the early summer, but much less in the late summer. And so that may have also played a role in causing this cooling. That's kind of the more general thing that kind of winds its way through the whole little ice age, Um, but it probably also contributed to these particularly cold periods. Much more important than those two variables, though, were volcanic eruptions. Now, if you get a big volcanic eruption, it will release sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. Uh, Sunlight will break down the sulfur dioxide, turn it into aerosols, Aerosols will scatter incoming shortwave solar radiation. And actually what will happen is that the stratosphere will warm up dramatically, but the surface of the Earth will cool down. A northern hemisphere uh, volcanic eruption, a big one, will cool the northern hemisphere. A southern hemisphere volcanic eruption, a big one, will cool the southern hemisphere. But if you have a big volcanic eruption around the tropics, uh, the dust and sulfur can actually spread around the entire world because of the convergence of the trade winds there. Um, And so it seems like there were these really big volcanic eruptions that sync up really nicely with the cold periods of the Little Ice Age. And even there were clusters of these volcanic eruptions at key points, for example, in the early 19th century or uh, in the mid to late 13th century that might have actually affected very long-term cooling by cooling the oceans, which take a long time to warm back up again, or setting in motion feedback loops in the Arctic where there's more sea ice. um, That reflects more sunlight, which cools temperatures, causing more sea ice, Mm -hmm. more sunlight to reflect, and so on and so forth. So volcanic eruptions, changes in the sun, and then finally, and perhaps even most importantly, um, the climate system is really complicated and parts of it, uh, like with parts of any complicated system change of their own volition um, and it's, this is what we call sort of internal or chaotic forcing and it seems like this internal forcing played a big role in um, of either deepening or in some cases actually also mitigating the effects of the little ice age on a regional scale. Um, so for example in Europe, the latest studies suggest that less heat was being transported into the northern Atlantic and Arctic oceans, possibly just because of internal dynamics and that may have actually affected the temperature of Europe in a very profound way and even wind patterns over Europe. So in short, There was a cold period. There were particularly cold pulses, and they were caused by a whole bunch of different forces, and they had consequences for atmospheric and oceanic circulation, which were profound on a regional scale.
1: Wow, thank you. So it's it's all of these factors are kind of earthly and um, in the atmosphere happening, which is – Having this huge effect on the Dutch Republic, but as as you outline in your book, it's not necessarily the effect that we might expect. We often associate climate change at, at this scale with catastrophe, but but your book is is not about that. Um, and it traces this um, complicated and sometimes contradictory impact in, in great detail, and it, and it divides that analysis into three parts. So I thought maybe we could start with the, the first part and this, the impact of the, of the Little Ice Age on the commerce of the Dutch Republic. So what, what kind of impact did these, these dramatic changes in climate have on commerce?
0: Well, the one big thing actually I want to say about the impact of climate change on, on history and what I found actually through this book is that it's complicated. And I think too often in previous studies, there's an assumption that when climate change is in a profound way, it will have disastrous consequences for societies around the world. Um, and, you know, as we start to learn more and more and get higher and higher resolution or precision of our climate reconstructions um, and start approaching these issues in different ways, I think we end up finding that These relationships are are really complex and sometimes counterintuitive. And so, for commerce, I mean, this is a big thing when we talk about the Dutch Republic, um, in part because the Republic just was very different from the other societies of the early modern world. And actually, that's one thing that drew me to it originally. The vast majority of people in the early modern world work in subsistence agriculture, but in the Dutch Republic, A good chunk of people work in commerce and industry, the coastal provinces of the Republic, are highly urbanized. Um, And so when you start thinking about the effects of climate change on the Republic, um, it's a good idea to think kind of beyond the agricultural focus of a lot of this kind of work and start thinking about relationships that really have never been approached before, relationships between commerce and climate change. And that's tricky to do, frankly. Um, What I try to do, at least in part, is look at journeys. So how people are actually moving through their world. You know, Rodell, famous 20th century historian, um, said that distance was the first enemy um, in early modern, in the early modern world. And I, I think that's true. It took an awfully long time for people to get anywhere, and that made it awfully difficult for people to conduct commerce. And so I tried to look at uh, to begin with Um, how changes in atmospheric circulation changed wind patterns on the routes of routes that um, Dutch merchants took to get from point A to point B. What I found, for example, is that Dutch East Indian company journeys to Asia seem to have been faster on account of a strengthening of trade winds. Um, And at the same time, journeys back to the Dutch Republic were not affected in an equal way because the journey actually it took them along a slightly different route. So it seems like just... that's one relationship where it seems like actually climate change is benefiting the Dutch. Um, and then you might think... Oh, okay. So we talked about those changes in atmospheric circulation. They also make storms more frequent mm-hmm. and more severe in the northeastern Atlantic. And, and you might think that worse storms actually impact the Dutch in a very straightforward, negative way. But actually, it seems like Dutch ships... Uh, were relatively seaworthy. and Dutch mariners were relatively skilled in the way that actually allowed them to avoid sinking in most uh, storms, at least if they were on these big ships that traveled to Asia. Um, and in fact, the storms may have pushed them along more quickly, which actually allowed them to avoid some of the worst, most negative aspects of the trip to Asia, which is just being stuck on these ships for a long time, the whole bunch of people in very cramped conditions. Um, So that's one example of the kind of relationships that I'm trying to bring out. And sometimes they're just really counterintuitive. Um, I also looked at uh, um, attempts to get to Asia via the Arctic. So in the 16th century, the Dutch were at war with the Spanish Empire. In fact, the Dutch were trying to break away from the Spanish Empire that they had been a part of. And the Spanish actually controlled trade with Asia. And they got there by going around Africa. Um, Now the Dutch, at least some Dutch were figured it would be a lot easier for us to just find a quick passage to Asia, through the Arctic, rather than going around Africa. Um, And they tried to do this, but it was very cold. Um, And because it was cold, there was just a lot of ice in their way. So here's another example of relationships between climate and, I'm going to call this commerce, um, being more complicated than you might expect, because So yes, they couldn't get to Asia because of the ice, but they did find whaling grounds that ended up being incredibly important for the economy of the Dutch Republic in the 17th century. So the ice redirected them from the discoveries that they wanted to make and sent them towards discoveries they never expected that ended up being very lucrative for the Dutch Republic. Now, I also looked at getting around closer to Europe um, and there, the relationships are more complicated, um, even more complicated. So it seems like um, sea ice kept the Dutch from getting going easily into the Baltic. And they needed the Baltic because the Dutch actually got a lot of their food through imports, grain imports from the Baltic. And they sold these high-value but low-volume goods from Southern Europe, in Baltic ports and then got bulk commodities from those ports that they then sold elsewhere across Europe. And this was a very lucrative trade. In fact, it was called the mother of all trades um, in the Dutch Republic. And um, so CI seems to have been quite negative for that trade. But it does seem like merchants adapted, um, at least to some extent. Um, to some aspects of the Little Ice Age. For example, to storms that became more common. They invested. They actually developed marine insurance um, and um, they actually had this technique where they would parcel their goods into multiple ships. So even if one sank, another one would at least give them some profits. And so we can see these kinds of examples of the Dutch adapting, but then also benefiting because um, they monopolized actually grain trade from the Baltic. And um, that meant that when harvest failures, which were caused in part, not entirely, but in part by destructive weather across Europe, when those harvest failures raised food prices, they had big stockpiles of grain that they could sell at a nice, tidy profit. So there was also something kind of parasitic about how they benefited um, from the coldest stretches of the Little Ice Age. And then finally, I looked at transportation within the Republic itself, and here I found that there were just a lot of different ways of getting from point A to point B in the Republic, which meant that if one of these methods um, was ruled out part because of weather, you could still take a different method. So if, for example, you couldn't go by boat from uh, Harlem to Amsterdam, then there's a good chance that you could take the road. And then even, in fact, these pole ferries pulled by horses um, didn't rely on sales. They were deployed during the coldest stretch of the Little Ice Age in the Dutch Republic, and they actually allowed people to travel independent of the weather, unless it was winter. <laughs> so that's a very long and rambling. <laughs>
1: no, no, not a, not at all. It's a it's a fascinating. Um, and as you say, complicated and sometimes counterintuitive story. And, and I think we'll come back again and again to this um, these themes of adaptation and, and resilience. But yeah. you mentioned then when you, when you were talking about commerce and journeys, as you put it, which I think is a lovely way of framing it. Mm-hmm. In the second part of your book, you, you take a similar approach and address, um, as you just mentioned, the, the struggle for independence against the Spanish mm-hmm. and how these climatic changes and, and changes in weather caused by the little – ice age affected those, I guess, the, what we would traditionally think of as the kind of cornerstones of empire, and that is armies and, and military fleets and things like that. So, so how then did the little ice age and changes in weather and climate play into that struggle for independence from the Spanish?
0: And it was complicated. Of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, it had both benefits and drawbacks for the Dutch, um, but overall more benefits than drawbacks. So uh, the Dutch Wars of Independence really began probably around 1568. is was a, a date that's often given. 1572, it certainly entered a new and more serious phase. Uh, and lasted, despite a 12-year truce that began in 1609, lasted until 1648. So it's a very long war, and it's, uh, it can be grouped into the 80-years war, that's, that's, what, that's what it is often called. Um and this war, you want to think of it as one war, really coincided with two important climate changes. So the first one was the onset of the Grindelwald fluctuation, which is one of these really very cold phases of Little Ice Age, these very little ice ages. It's also kind of called the hyper-LIA sometimes, but we'll call it the Grindelwald fluctuation, which sounds a lot better, if you ask me. But anyway, so there's a cooling that sets in around 1565, Um, And it's not just cooling in the low countries, it seems like storms became more severe. Um, It seems that precipitation became, uh, you know, more common, it was more precipitation. Um, And so it's more than just temperature and it actually also seems like weather became more erratic from year to year. And this wall fluctuation lasted all the way through the year without, so called a year without summer in 1628. After that, there was a very modest warming that lasted for at least 15 years. Um, and not only warming, but then also, it seems, a dry trend. So cold and wet for most of the 80 Years' War, and then dry and warm. Now, this is very important, um, because the 80 Years' War coincided with something that's kind of still controversial, but pretty much accepted to be the military revolution. <laughs> And what this military revolution entailed was uh, primarily the construction of new defenses that were based on the Italian bastions, they were shaped like stars, and they had sloped walls, which allowed them to better deal with artillery fire. And all those angles in the star actually allowed defenders to fire on attackers from every different angle. Um, and, and so it was the fortifications, but then also militaries got bigger, arms got bigger, Uh, There was a need for more officers who knew how to use guns in, in different ways. And the upshot was that everything just got much more expensive and much longer when it came to fighting wars. And wars turned on sieges, long, grueling sieges. Now... In the Grindelwald fluctuation, it was actually easier to invade the Republic. Rivers that surrounded the Republic froze over uh, in long or severe winters. And so it was much easier to actually cross these rivers that would have otherwise been defensive barriers. Um, but it was also more difficult to set up sieges and to um, maintain sieges because these troops had to be outside uh, in the cold. You know, they could kind of build shelters, but still, they had to be warmed somehow. Um, there were often very long supply lines, so they couldn't get fuel, they couldn't get food, and they were just stuck out there for a very long time. Mortality rates were really high. So cold winters make it easier to invade, but harder to really survive sieges. And then torrential rains can also have a complicated impact. And one reason for that is that the Dutch defenders would try and actually purposefully flood areas around their cities, or even areas between their cities, to break sieges. And these attempts at flooding, as you can imagine, were more effective in storms or in heavy rains. And, for example, with the Siege of Leiden in 1574, um, the breaking of sluices between The Hague and Leiden, these towns are actually pretty far apart, The Hague and Leiden flooded this huge tract of farmland, allowed Dutch ships to relieve uh, the siege of Spanish soldiers, troops, around laden, but also the floodwaters advanced very quickly in the storm in ways that have caught the Spanish off guard. Um, and I think overall, with all these weather conditions, you can say that offensive operations until about 1620, 1629 were more difficult. Um, um, and that overall benefited the Republic because Spain was just more powerful. They were on the offense, they were trying to take back their former territory. Um, So that's what I argue. And then um, there was this warming, drying trend just around the same time the Dutch allied with the French against Spain, and Spain was distracted by a whole bunch of other conflicts. And so for that reason, exactly when the environment favored it, the Dutch could go on the offensive in a new sort of way um, and sort of push into the southern Netherlands, which was owned by Spain at the time, and relieve some of the big cities that had been uh, Spanish-held. Um, so it was a very fortuitous set of overlapping political military and um, and environmental circumstances so, so yeah it's complicated a lot of stuff going on but that's what makes it interesting I
1: yeah absolutely it <laughs> certainly does um- also, of course, I mean, you mentioned the, the Dutch East India Company earlier. There's this other great rival of the Dutch Republic that, that you write about, and that, of course, is the English. A frenemy. <laughs> A frenemy. <of> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so how does, how does weather and, and climate change play out then with this great rivalry with the English as opposed to with the Spanish?
0: Yeah, so the, the big thing with the Dutch and the English is that these are two maritime powers. And actually, the English had supported the the Dutch rebellion Um, in the 16th century. You know, there's all these kind of popular histories of Elizabeth and Leicester and and their sort of efforts to uh, save the Dutch Republic and really save themselves in in the war against Spain. Um, But over the course of the 17th century, the Dutch and the English find themselves in competition pretty much throughout the world that was known to them. Um, And then in the 1650s, Um, they really get into more serious conflict, and there's actually three Anglo-Dutch wars between 1652 and 1674. Um, But it's fascinating because these three wars coincide with the deepening of another great little Ice Age cold period called the Maunder Minimum. And there's a whole bunch of things that go on with the climate system as this Monder Minimum deepens. seems that a pressure seesaw over the North Atlantic Ocean it's called the North Atlantic Oscillation, switches from a persistently positive to a persistently negative mode. And what that really means is that prevailing westerlies are diverted south and easterlies now flow over the northeastern Atlantic to a greater extent than they did before. And then I mentioned that uh, oceanic heat transport, so less heat is being sent into the North Atlantic Ocean. And that has much the same effect because it generates more ice north of Europe, which again changes atmospheric circulation, sends in more easterly winds. And there's actually a number of other things in the climate system which I won't belabor, but that kind of have the same effect. So there's more easterly winds over the course of these three wars. Now, that matters a great deal because in the age of sail, what you wanted was the wind at your back relative to your opponent. It's called the weather gauge. So you wanted your opponent in what's called the lee sign. So um, picture a painting. (laughs) I sometimes show this in my PowerPoint. So there's a painting and all the sails and the flags are, are pointing from the right, sorry, from the left to the right then the wind is going from the left to the right. And if one ship is on the left to a ship that's on the right of it, that means that the ship that's to the left has the weather gauge. This is much easier to show, actually. (laughs) But but, um, anyway, so you wanted the wind to be um, in a certain place. Um, And for English fleets, fleets having the weather gauge usually meant that winds were from the west, whereas for Dutch fleets, sailing towards England, um, it usually meant that the winds were from the east. Now, in the First Anglo-Dutch War, most of the battles, almost all of them, the wind was from the west for the English. The English... Um, had better ships bigger ships they had bigger guns and they had better tactics but they could deploy all of those advantages because the weather gauge allowed them to stay a certain distance from their opponents and allowed them to sort of set the terms of the battle so they actually won most of the battles in this first Anglo-Dutch war as a result of environmental factors allowing them to deploy their technological tactical uh, advantages then in the second and third Anglo-Dutch wars, the weather shifts. And now Easterly winds are more common. Those easterly winds give crucial advantages to the Dutch, who had actually adopted aspects of English tactics and technology. So it's not to say that the winds and the climate change that they are um, determining the fate of battles and the outcome of wars, but they're um, a very important and I think overlooked variable. And so the Dutch actually end up winning the second and the third Anglo-Dutch wars. And I actually take it all the way to the Glorious Revolution of 1688, when there's a strong easterly wind that pushes the Dutch invasion fleet uh, towards England. And actually permits an invasion that's now remembered because of Dutch propaganda as the glorious revolution path.
1: Wow, fantastic! Now you mentioned uh, there the role of technology and how the, the Dutch had adopted some English technology and that worked in their favour. In the in the final. Uh, section of your book, you, you examine it, this underexplored, I think, relationship and, and that's the, the relationship between weather and changes in the climate um, and culture. So how does how does the the influence of the Little Ice Age and these um, fluctuations play out in, in Dutch technology? How did how the Dutch adapt their technology?
0: Sure, yeah. So these uh, relationships are hard to determine because um, we have as far as I know, anyway, no smoking gun source that says I developed this technology because weather trends are changing. What we do have are a bunch of examples of technologies that were certainly more effective during the coldest stretches of the Little Ice Age and in some cases were developed because of disasters that were in part caused by climate change. So one example that actually takes us to the Second Anglo-Dutch War again um, is the development of new fire hoses and fire engines in the wake of the Great Fire of London in 1666. And this is a fire that began in Pudding Lane in London and was actually fanned by persistent, very strong easterly winds. Um, and then, you know, as a result of these winds, the fire crept along the Thames and burned down a good chunk of London. Now, several years later, a Dutch inventor, Jan um, started thinking about how to develop you know, more effective firefighting techniques. Um, and he ultimately ended up developing these engines, very mobile fire engines and hoses that could be, you know, um, Directed at every part of the building. Um, that actually would have been particularly effective um, amid fires that it seems like, urban fires that seem like a more common in the middle Ice Age cold phases because of more common storms. A lot of fires were caused by lightning and because of um, colder winters, actually. You needed heating devices around more often. <laughs> These heating devices were dangerous. You know, if you tipped over a candle, you know that starts a fire. If you know a, a furnace gets out of control, that starts a fire. So these firefighting techniques, you know, certainly were more effective in that modern minimum that I have described, and they were actually exported outside of Amsterdam and made very tidy profits for the inventor in question. Um, but then you also see, um, uh, for example, the spread of these pole ferries. These pole ferry system that would have allowed people to get from point A to point B in the republic, independent of weather. Again, outside of winter, um, uh, you can see the uh, widespread adoption of icebreakers. Um, and no, particularly by brewers' guilds in the cities of the Dutch Republic to keep open harbors and to maintain uh, waterborne lines of transport between key locations. Um, again, sort of these icebreakers become more common in the 17th century and in the 18th century. Um, and they're fascinating because they not only do they break up the ice, but they actually produce blocks of ice that could then be sold for use in cellars. So it's like they're actually profiting off of these conditions that you might think would have been incredibly destructive for them. Um, so there's a lot of examples like that that I cover in my book. Um, some connections, I think, are sketchier than others. This is sometimes a problem with looking at culture where, you know, there's a lot of very sketchy connections, but it's fun to
1: speculate about. <laughs> the um, and I mean, you did mention that there is no no particular smoking gun, I suppose, which is a, a perennial problem for, for environmental historians. Oh, yeah. But how... Um, uh, did ordinary Dutch people have any idea that, that the climate was changing? Can we see this play out in, I mean, you mentioned, of course, technology, but does it play out in other aspects of Dutch culture?
0: Well, that's a, just a fascinating question, yeah. Um, so, first of all, it, the problem is, thinking as a historian, uh, the problem is how can we access um, what ordinary people are thinking? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a number of sources like you know, intercepted letters sent to Dutch warships, by ordinary people, there's a number of sources that let us access, you know, the kind of discourses that are that ordinary people are sort of contributing to. But a lot of those sources are very standardized. You know, we do get some references to weather, um, but they don't really tell us much about how people are thinking about weather, maybe responding to weather, not really how they're thinking about it. Um, so, to a large extent, we're dependent on, you know, upper middle class or even elite um, reflections on weather. And from that, we can tell that uh, there was an awareness of changes in certain weather extremes. So, for example, people could tell that uh, um, se- severe winters or uh, winter was severe uh, and more severe than it had been for several decades um, or that there had been a string of particularly severe winters which they hadn't seen for you know a similar amount of time. Um, they actually even kept track of changes in water levels, which reflect in part, but not entirely, changes in precipitation or storminess. Um, using all kinds of devices, um, uh, they, they measured it directly, they kept stones on the side of major bodies of water, they drew marks on bridges, you know, they had a bunch of different ways of keeping track of um, past extremes. But climate change is actually about changes in the mean and the variability of weather for a certain amount of time, a long period of time, usually. And it requires really getting a good handle on this. It requires a level of statistical thinking that I don't think existed in the Republic at the time. So there were kind of... Um, the staggering kind of groping steps towards an understanding that weather patterns were changing, but they were predominantly focused around extremes and weather. And it wouldn't be what we call today an awareness of climate change. Yeah, and so then how did that affect Dutch culture? Well, I will say that culture need not register or adapt to climate change uh, in a way, or rather, people need not be aware of climate change in order to have cultural responses and, and adaptations to climate change they need to be aware of weather. So we do see things like winter landscapes that seem to be reflections or representations of how people are coping with winter. I wouldn't say that they, that such winter landscapes um, were actually painted because the climate got colder. This is an argument that has been made before by people uh, because it seems like you know, the rise of these landscapes coincide with the Grindelwald fluctuation I wouldn't say that they were painted because of climate change, but they do show scenes of people um, that seem to be realistic, scenes of people um, experiencing and even often enjoying cold winters. And then, what is more important and interesting to me, are depictions of battles by painters, artists, who are at times embedded within armies and navies. And so they're actually depicting but it seems like it really happened. And as far as we can tell, they're also faithfully reproducing weather events that now we can link to climate change. So there's a bunch of cultural responses, but not all of them, in fact maybe not any of them, are conscious cultural uh, responses to climate change.
1: And could you maybe, um, you write about this in the book, could you maybe explain what all that has to do with witches?
0: Oh, yeah, um, so uh, Wolfgang Beringer made the argument that witchcraft is the crime of the Little Ice Age because witches were accused of conjuring hailstorms and other disastrous weather uh, that wreaked havoc on their enemies, uh, mostly farmers. and so the great witch hunt coincides with Almost perfectly with the Grindelwald fluctuation in here. And um, other witch hunts coincide with an earlier cold period, which is called the Shporer minimum, and uh, the Modern minimum. So it seems like there's a really strong correlation here, and there's a very clear connection between witches and exactly the kind of weather that these cold periods of Little Ice Age should make common. Now, there's been some pushback on that idea and um, specialists in early modern history will find a number of problems with it. For example, (laughs) not all witches were persecuted for weather. Um, In fact, that's probably a minority of of accused witches. Um, But what is interesting is that we find very, very few uh, examples of witchcraft persecution in the Dutch Republic. And I think that's in part because climate just isn't influencing the Republic like it influences... Places in Europe where witch hunts grew more common. You know, One of the arguments of the book is that climate change presented more advantages than disadvantages for the republic. Um, and just the character of the republic, which was highly urbanized, didn't lend itself to the same kind of conflicts about you know, ruined harvests that you find elsewhere in Europe. So for a number of reasons, um, this sort of stereotypical crime of the Little Ice Age and the persecution and suffering that it, um, it provoked, we don't see that in the republic at all.
1: Yeah, which is um, really fascinating and I think points to some of the bigger themes in your book that you've, you've come back to again and again, and that is that this book is, is largely a story of, of resilience and adaptation, exactly as you said, as opposed to the kind of narrative of crisis and catastrophe that we're used to hearing about when we talk about climate change. So why do you think it's important to tell stories about resilience in the face of climate change?
0: So, I want to ramble on a little bit uh, more about resilience and adaptation. So, I see a presentation here at Yale about um, the four different ways that the Dutch seem to have benefited from, or the the little ice age seems to have affected in a positive way the Dutch Republic. So, first, it seems like there were um, positive local environmental consequences of the Little Ice Age for the distinct society of the Dutch Republic. Sometimes when we write about and think about climate change affecting societies, we often think, well, dramatic climate change is going to negatively impact environments, the productivity of environments, for example. But that's not always the case. I think the Dutch example shows that. Um, then there's resilience. And resilience uh in some writing can be broken into resistance and resilience, where resistance is your capacity to avoid harm from, for example, extreme weather. And resilience is I'm sorry, um, yeah, resilience is your ability to bounce back from harm. But I kind of grew both of those two things on the resilience. Um, then there's adaptation where you respond either consciously or unconsciously to weather in a way that makes your society Uh, ultimately either more resilient to weather or that allows you to exploit uh, new weather patterns in a way that actually benefits you. And finally, there's something that I'm sort of tentatively calling parasitism or parasitic or whatever opportunism. (laughs) It's early-ish. But this is basically so that you're exploiting the misfortune of other societies. So you're exploiting what's been called the global crisis of the 17th century. And I think you can see all of these examples in the Dutch context. And, and, and why it's so important to focus on these things? Well, you know, uh, those of us who are converts, and, that we believe in anthropogenic global warming, um, we know it's going to be bad. It's going to suck <laughs> for a lot of places. Um, but we need are at the very least parables of societies that seem to have coped well with climate change. Give us hints as to what we should watch out for and and the kind of things that we might think about doing. Um, so just one very broad, maybe overly vague example of that would be that the Dutch society was intimately connected to the societies that surrounded. Them. Um, you know, they welcomed immigration. Um, they conducted an even monopolized trade. So these policies that we see now in the United States, where of course you know there seems to be. Uh, barriers put up to immigration and there's concerns about trade I'm not sure if that's really going to help us um, cope with the world that's changing in profound ways. That's just something that's very vague Um, but sometimes we get these sort of maybe vague parables from the past that can nevertheless get us to think in different ways about the challenges of the present.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's fantastic and I have taken up an awful lot of your time so I'll finish up with a final question that Um, I like to ask all my guests and that's very much um, related to what you were just saying. Um, So in the conclusion to the Frigid Golden Age, you write that historians rarely feature in discussions about global warming. So what role do you think environmental historians should play in these current debates about how to deal with climate change? Is it, is it telling these stories or is it more than that?
0: Well, telling these stories is one of the most important things that we can do. And I think there's a real thirst for it. Um, Um, so for example with historicalclimatology.com I founded that website um, sort of a personal blog and by the end of the first year I had it I noticed that we were on track for 10,000 hits in that year you were on track I'm used to talking like that now I was on track for that Um, and and so then I started thinking, well, maybe there's some kind of appetite for these kind of stories that I'm trying to tell. And, and so we built it, uh, built this website. Now it really truly was we um, I'm working with Catherine Kleeman and Bathsheba Demeth um, to build the website. And, and now we get half a million hits a year. So I just feel like these parables, they don't necessarily tell us exactly what to do, but I think they're they're thought-provoking in, in a way that people that people need and want to hear, um, and then you know, there's a number of things uh, that, that environmental historians can do, and, and you probably know more about this than I do, to be honest. And, and Mark Carey um, is another example of someone who's worked uh, in what I'm about to describe. But um, the ability to make to refine predictions of the future in specific ways. So I think a lot of predictions of how climate change uh, will impact us. Um, they assume that there's a pretty straightforward relationship between environmental change and human responses. And, of course, what historians really find is that that relationship is always mitigated by a whole, like, complicated uh, additional relationships between groups of people and ideas and economic arrangements and all these things. Um, and so we can often tell scientists that their predictions for the future are too simplistic And in some ways, we can even plug new variables into their models that might make them uh, more uh, capable of accurate prediction. So this is something that I, frankly, haven't done much yet, but I'm starting to work more with modelers. So perhaps in a year or two, I'll have a better answer for you there. But you probably know more about this than I do, and certainly Mike Holm, for example, has has written a little bit about this as well. I think there's a a very rich potential for environmental historians to get
1: involved in that area. I I couldn't agree more, and I think we look forward to hearing more. So Dagmar De Groot, thank you for being on the show today.
0: Thanks again so much.
1: That was Professor Dagmar De Groot talking to us about his new book, The Frigid Golden Age climate change, the little ice age and the Dutch Republic 1560 to 1720. It was published by Cambridge University Press in February 2018. Thanks for joining us.